Today's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17, which you can find on page 1177 of the Church Bibles. That's Ephesians 6, 10 to 17, 1177. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. The scale of Ephesians is vast. It traces God's plan from eternity all the way through to the end of time. It unites all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, and it welcomes and embraces all peoples in one new humanity. It tells a gospel story that affects every single aspect of our lives, and now this vast scale pushes even beyond that beyond the material, physical world, and into the realm of spirits and powers. The subject of spiritual realities might immediately switch some of us off, because you might think, well, where's the scientific proof for that? But if your only tool was a ruler, would you immediately count out everything from existence that can't be measured in centimetres? If your only tool was a ruler, would you rule out the existence of gravity and electricity? No, of course you wouldn't. Science is a wonderful tool, but just like a ruler, we must acknowledge that it has a limited function. All science can do is measure the observable, material world. So rather than try to explain everything using just one limited tool, I encourage all of us to Um, expand, broaden our toolkits this morning. Listen well to God's word as spiritual realities are explained. The subject of a spiritual battle that we've just read about might make some of us fearful. It might make some of us step backwards. It might bring up all sorts of horrific images and thoughts from, uh, from scary stories and horror films, seances and voices and possessions. And it's right that we should take this subject seriously, but that doesn't mean we have to take every single example in popular culture as genuine. Honestly, 99.9% of all that stuff is just a con looking for your money. However, this morning, we're going to be reminded that there is a battle in the heavenly realms. It's a battle that affects all of us in one way or another. It's a battle that 
you need to know about. Because otherwise you might as well just lay out a picnic blanket in a war zone. I think we can summarize the message of these verses in one sentence. Stand your ground against the devil's schemes by wearing God's armor. We'll put it up on the screen. Stand your ground against the devil's schemes by wearing God's armor. Um, now, the, uh, the, the very helpful guys at the back thought I'd made a mistake at the start, but I'm going to be awkward and start in the middle, as we've seen it highlighted there. Um, against the devil's schemes. This is the middle clause of the sentence, and in verses 11 and 12, we discover our opponents in this battle. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings. Why did God think that clarification was necessary? Why did God think we need to know that our battle is not primarily against people? I think it's because if we think we're merely fighting a human battle, then we're only really going to want to fight it with human weapons, aren't we? If we think our main opponents are politicians, then we're going to put all of our resources of time and finances into an organization, a good good organization like Christian Concern. Or if we think that our main opponents are atheist scientists, then all our evangelistic events are going to be apologetics, and all of our speakers are going to need to have a PhD. Those things are not unimportant. They rightly deserve some of our resources. But politicians and atheists are not our main adversaries. So we need more than human weapons and human armor for our battle. Christian activism and apologetics are not sufficient on their own. As verse 12 says, our true enemies are rulers, authorities, powers of darkness, and evil spiritual forces. Not human, but demonic. I think there's a certain dark curiosity in us that wants to know whether all those words refer to different types or different ranks of spirit, but, but God knows that that's a curiosity that doesn't need to be indulged. What is clear is that these forces are powerful. That language of, of force and rule carries that significance. We also know that these forces are wicked, whereas Christians are described as children of light in the Lord in chapter 5. The natural habitat of these forces is darkness. They are evil. Chief of all these dark demonic powers is the devil. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said that before we were made alive, we followed the way of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And in chapter 4, verse 27, we were told not to give the devil a foothold by uh, being angry uh, with our brothers and sisters or lying to them. Again, God doesn't seem to think we need a lot of details about who the devil is and where he comes from here. What we do know, what we should be focusing on, is what we read in verse 11. He is scheming against us, scheming against the church. I wonder what these schemes might be. What do you think they might be? 
Our minds might naturally jump to the scary supernatural stuff from stories, from films. But based in Ephesians and what we've read so far, I think there's something else that's in mind. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 10, we read the following about God's big plan. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The church, us, we're like a a trophy cabinet displaying God's wisdom. Each trophy has a name of the victor on it every time it's Jesus. Each of us trophies has the name of the defeated foe on it every time the spiritual forces lost. We make them look weak, defeated, rubbish compared to God and his wisdom. The devil hates this. The church is humiliating to him. So his schemes are to undo, to undermine God's wonderful new society. There's going to be a time, and the devil can't do anything about this, there is going to be a time where the church is radiant, beautiful, a gorgeous bride on her wedding day. But until then, he's going to try and make her as ugly as possible. He's going to try and undo every good thing that God has done in Ephesians so far. So with that in mind, what might the devil's schemes be against us here at Christchurch Banstead? Three possible suggestions from me. One, Father God wants Christchurch Banstead to know that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So the devil will scheme to make us forget all the good and see only bad. He wants you to think that you're cursed, not blessed. Second scheme, Christ has broken down every single dividing wall of hostility in Christchurch Banstead. So the devil will start building those walls again. He will stir where there's conflict. He will pull people apart He'll get us to focus, he'll get you to focus on what divides rather than what unites. Third suggestion, Christ has given gifts to Christchurch Banstead to bring us to maturity, but the devil will keep us as spiritual babies, looking only for our own interests instead of building one another up. He'll tell you to stay quiet rather than encourage He'll tell you to consume church rather than serve church. Make no mistake, our enemy is at work. Now let's go on to the next slide and consider the first part of our summary sentence. We've thought about our opponents in this battle. Now let's define what sort of battle we're fighting. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. That's the repeated phrase throughout this paragraph. Verse 11, so that you can take your stand. Verse 13, so that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. And verse 14, stand firm then. The warfare here is not marching across new lands to claim new ground for Jesus. There are no chariots or horses provided to ride on. We're not Alexander the Great conquering the world. 
Rather, Paul repeatedly says, stand your ground because we are fighting to defend territory that has already been won for us. If we're following Jesus in repentance and faith, we are already made alive. We already have peace with God. We're already blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're already in Christ. So this battle is more like defending a fortress against invading hordes. And let me explain why that matters. Though our enemy is intimidating, he he is, we are fighting from a position of strength. We're not struggling uphill, slipping through the mud against an enemy that has the well-defended high ground. No, we are the ones who are secure in the fortress. We just have to hold our ground, the ground that Jesus has already won. Knowing that we have good ground to fight on should give us great confidence. We should be resolute knowing that we, are, we have a good footing. But I must say, if you aren't in Christ yet, I fear for you. If you're not behind the walls, I fear for you when the evil day comes. So this is a defensive battle. But it's also a wrestle. In verse 12, um, when Paul talks about a struggle, you can see that there, he's using a word that's straight from the ring. It's up close and personal. This isn't drone warfare, clicking buttons at a distance. This uh, isn't a war fought hundreds of miles away by a professional army of preachers and missionaries. No, this is hand-to-hand combat. It's in your face. The sweat and blood is mingling on the ground beneath your feet as you strive with all your effort. Everyone is involved. Immense effort is required to fight off the devil's schemes. When he hurls negative thoughts at you to make you forget how blessed you are, you can't be passive. When he stirs up the conflict between you and another brother or sister, you can't run away. When he tries to undermine the witness of our church in this village, you can't leave it to the professionals to sort it out. Each one of us must wrestle and strain to continue in the blessing and peace that is ours in Christ. You must stand your ground. Do not give the devil even an inch. And now let's complete our our summary sentence. We've seen our opponents and the nature of the battle. Now we discover our power to fight and win it. Stand your ground against the devil's schemes by wearing God's armor. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. God's power, it's been a recurring theme in this letter. Back in chapter 1, Paul said that the same incomparably great power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. 
This power has raised us from death to life. This power has smashed down every dividing wall of hostility. Chapter 3 showed us that as believers, we have access to this power through the Holy Spirit who, who strengthens our inner being. This is the engine that drives our unity and growth to maturity. It's the power that we have to call on in our family life, in our work life, in every aspect of our existence. And it's this same mighty power that we have on our side in the spiritual battle too. I really love the, um, the imagery from the Narnia film, Prince Caspian. Little uh, Lucy is faced by a huge army, fully armed, out for blood, charging towards her on this narrow bridge, and yet she stands her ground. Why? Because next to her is the mighty, powerful lion, Aslan. In him, she has all the power she needs for the fight us to. The way we access God's power in this battle is by putting on his armor. This isn't just the armor supplied by God, this is the very armor that God himself wears, and you can read about that in Isaiah 59 afterwards if you like. And now we get to wear that same armor, figuratively speaking of course. There's a belt, a breastplate, footwear, a shield, a helmet, and a sword. Each item is linked to a benefit of the gospel, often one that's been mentioned already in the letter. So let's, um, let's go through each item and give an application for each. Around our waist, we fasten the belt of truth. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, we read this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Wearing this belt means reminding yourself of the gospel truth that led to your conversion. At some point or other, the devil is going to whisper in your ear, you aren't really a Christian at all, are you? That's when you need to tighten your belt, firm and secure. Remind yourself of who God says you are. You are blessed. You are alive. You are brought near. That is the truth. On our chests, we put the breastplate of righteousness in place. Imagine if, like a tabloid newspaper journalist, night and day there was someone constantly pointing out your flaws and failures, always tearing you down, exposing what you tried to keep private. Imagine no more, because that's the reality. Devil means slanderer. That's what he does. But when he reminds us of our sins, we put the breastplate of righteousness in place. That means owning and imitating Christ's righteousness, his moral perfection in this case. Remember that he not only died for your sins, but he lived for your righteousness, And that is an impenetrable armor against the devil's slander. Whatever he says, no charge will stick against you if you're a believer. Because in God's eyes, just like Jesus, you stopped at a well to talk to an outsider. Just like Jesus, you remained perfectly obedient even when times were hard. Just like Jesus, you turned over the tables of corruption. In God's eyes, 
you are just as righteous as Jesus. And we are created in Christ to do those very same good, righteous works. That defense is impenetrable. On our feet, we wear the gospel of peace. This peaceful footwear equips us to stand when the devil tries to create disunity. He'll point out and emphasize the differences between you and another believer. He'll tell you, he's thinking this. She's saying that about you. Wearing these shoes means remembering Ephesians 2, where Christ smashes every human wall of hostility. That makes us ready to reconcile across every wall. That makes us ready to show and tell God's love to anyone, regardless of differences in age, race, class, or any other human division. So far, we've had the, uh, the belts, we've had the breastplate, we've had the footwear, the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, we need the shield of faith. And you've probably seen pictures of those Roman soldiers carrying a massive shield. We're talking about something that's literally the size of a door frame. It covers them entirely. And this is the complete defense that is offered by faith. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. It just means believing, trusting. That's what faith is. In and of itself, it's nothing special, really. Faith isn't strong because of what it is. Faith is strong because of whom it rests on. Faith offers us complete head-to-toe protection because it lays hold of God in all his grace. That's how we begin the Christian life. That's how we must continue as well. If we do so, there is no reason to fear the devil's flaming arrows. Those um, arrows don't refer to any specific type of attack, rather his schemes in general. Anything that he might come up with, and not one of them will harm you if you continue to lay hold of God's grace through faith. Our penultimate piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. We need this because our minds are maybe the primary area of the devil's attacks. The devil tries to plant doubts and fears that lead us to question our relationship with God. He tries to undermine our confidence in our salvation. He tries to make us feel hopeless and defeated. If we allow those thoughts to take root in our minds, they can lead us to despair. And the devil loves it when you just sit and wallow in that headspace for hours. But the helmet of salvation protects our minds and thoughts from these attacks. It is our our future salvation that's referred to here. When Christ returns, that's what's in view. Wearing this helmet means putting on the certain hope of that glorious day. Every time you're tempted to spiral inwards and downwards, instead look forwards. Yes, things are not as they ought 
to be right now. Yes, you are not as you ought to be right now. I'm not as I ought to be right now. But one day soon, all things will be put in their right place under Christ. You will be completely holy and radiant. The problems of today will be barely remembered by comparison to that glorious future. Think on better things when the devil places those thoughts in your mind. And finally, we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the past few years, we've um, heard of nations attempting to destabilize other nations by spreading false information online. And right now, the devil is engaged in disinformation like never before. In an age where information travels faster and further than ever before, we're never more than one mouse click away from the devil's lies. Never before has he had such instant access to our homes, to our lives, to our minds. So pick up your sword. Pick up your sword. I find it interesting that Paul doesn't use the usual word for God's word in this sentence. He doesn't necessarily have at the front of his mind scripture in its totality, rather the specific sayings of scripture. In other words, don't just know your Bible, arm yourself with specific sayings, specific verses. When you feel too weak to stand, pick up Isaiah 41 verse 10 that Dan read right at the start. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Hold on to that saying. When doubting if you can keep going, pick up Philippians 4 verse 19. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And when tempted by impure thoughts, pick up Matthew Chapter 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. As we put them on, what we're really doing is wearing the gospel. We're wearing the gospel, as we do everyday life. This is how to stand against the devil's schemes. Let's finish with one more application about discernment. How do we know when we're victim to the devil's schemes? Verse 13, put on the armor of God so that When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Paul seems to be saying that there are specific times when the devil is particularly at work against you. But just one chapter before, chapter 5, verse 16, Paul said, the days are evil. My point is this, 
there's not much point trying to figure out whether today is the evil day or just one of the many evil days. Partly because to a lesser degree, all the days are evil, but mostly because when the fighting starts, it's already too late to put your armor on. It's too late by that point. Instead, I think the right application here is that we always need to be wearing the gospel. We should behave as if we need it every single day. I think the temptation is to think that some of the problems we face are material and other problems are spiritual. I don't think it works like that. I think it's far wiser to assume that every battle in our lives is both materially and spiritually significant. However normal that battle might seem on the surface. And that doesn't mean we can blame the devil for our, our problems and excuse ourselves from the responsibility to act. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean becoming obsessed and seeing spirits everywhere. That's all sorts of dangerous. But it does mean fighting every single battle, both materially and spiritually. Wear God's armor. Far better to be overprepared than underprepared. Let's take a moment, bow our heads, shut our eyes if it helps you to concentrate, and consider that problem that was on your mind as you walked into church this morning. What piece of gospel armor do you need to put on right now? Father God, thank you that we are on solid ground. Thank you that in this fight, Christ has already won the victory. And thank you that we know that there is a certain full defeat of evil to come. Thank you that one day all who are in Christ will be beautifully shining radiant. Please help us to stand our ground until that day. Thank you that you have fully equipped us in the gospel to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.